0: This is A Becoming Creature. Welcome back. Before the show, I wanted to mention that my guest Booty and her husband Hap recently lost their home and homestead in a wildfire. As Booty explains in the show, the tragedy did not reach the amount of monetary damage required for assistance from the state of California or from FEMA. If you have the means, please go to their GoFundMe, which you can find in this show's show notes, or you can find by Googling BEX, spelled B-E-X, and HAP, spelled H-A-P, Relief Fund. If you do not have significant means, they also lost their library in the fire, and they would be touched if you could send them a book. Feel free to send them any book from your heart, but if you would like a list of books they would love to have, you can see that list in the show notes. We would all like to say thank you so much to everyone that has already contributed. Your ongoing support and love means everything in the world. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Booty. Nick here, and I am joined by the big-hearted, boundless, bending and blossoming Big Booty. That's B-U-D-D-H-I, who you can find on Twitter at Embryosophy. (laughs) Booty, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Critter. It's an honor. I'm in good company.
0: You're very welcome. I'm glad to have you on. Uh, As far as I can tell, Booty comes from the Vedic literature and refers to the ability to reason, discern, judge, comprehend, and understand. Especially as it pertains to Buddhism and Hinduism. Can you tell me about the name embryosophy and how the two names might intertwine?
1: So, the actual name embryosophy was coined by my husband, Touch Moonflower, mm-hmm. or Hap, as some of y'all know him. And um, it felt very fitting. Um, it felt too perfect. I had to use it. It's so. I'm a somatics student and teacher, and that might also bear some explaining. Somatics is one of those words that gets kind of used a lot and means a lot of things, or it's kind of vague, like the word embodiment. It's sort of a popular word in like movement and fitness right now, and maybe, I don't know if anybody knows what it means. I don't even know if I know what it means. But so anyway, I study... Somatics and teach them, and the method I use is based on um, developmental movement, which includes like from birth to walking, but but also includes um, the movement our cells go through as we grow ourselves in the womb. And there are a lot of really cool overlapping patterns then uh, in the womb, cellularly, that kind of recapitulate in uh, babyhood. And even in adulthood too, which is part of why I love it so much um, and part of how we apply it to adults. But so in a nutshell, that's where embryosophy comes from. I found that like this outlook, um, learning how we move in our, like from simple to complex, kind of informs everything I see and do in the world.
0: This movement from, from simple to complex, how does like the, I guess, the the micro concept of the embryo lead to a better understanding of um, of the mind body, but also how does it apply more broadly, like like fostering the world systems we want to see?
1: Where to start? I mean, first of all, we build ourselves, which is really important to me, Our the wombs we are uh grow in when we first start growing. I mean, it's not we're never alone. Maybe obviously a sperm and an egg have to meet and have a kind of engender a conversation. Like it's like between the, the like friction between the two engenders a totally new thing, which I think is really magical and fascinating. And that totally new thing is us. There's like a conversation that starts a spark and then that new thing is us. Completely unique but then we grow ourselves. We really do though. I mean, I don't, do I want to call it work? I don't know. I'm going to leave that as like a sort of bookmark question, but like, but we grow ourselves um, and arrange ourselves. And so part of what I love about embryology and I'm very much an amateur embryologist, though, that's a big part of my study, but just to be clear, I'm not a scientist. Um, but uh, the fact that we have to go through an embryo stage where everything is is talking to everything else cellularly, like at a local level, um, which is sometimes through proximity, it's sometimes through chemicals. Um, so it's sometimes by proximity, I guess I mean something more mechanical, like touch. Sometimes through vibration, through fluid. But the fact that we start really small and there's no plan, so we have. Um, Parameters on our development from our genes and from DNA, things that can get turned on and off, but everything is happening in the moment. There's no plan. That's why we have an embryological stage, is that everything happens uh, through local communication and mutual induction. So to me, there's also a beautiful lesson about what I, this is getting really big really fast, but what I think non duality or how I tend to define non duality, which might be if not idiosyncratic i I mean non-duality i don't it's one another word let's throw it in the pile with somatics and embodiment where it's used (laughs) a lot and i don't know if anyone knows what it means and maybe that's a good thing but um just meaning everything has to relate to everything else for it to work well and that's why it works because it's unmanaged so i think whatever one's spiritual beliefs might be to me there's room for divinity in a lot of different ways, but at the fundament, the the relationship between the parts is what creates the whole. So maybe that's like the pithiest way of saying how I think of embryosophy as being a sort of like, I can't help but see what I just said in everything.
0: So yeah, maybe we can clarify a part of that because you say like we arrange ourselves, um, but you also say that self-making happens without a director and that for instance the central nervous system is not in charge per se uh can you say more perhaps touching on how the like embryo mind body resonance learning has shaped uh your understanding of like spirituality in the world and how it's perhaps wrong to think of it as like the central nervous system is in control
1: yeah that's a great uh Great question, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's the way I often term it is that like thinking the brain or the nervous system is in charge is a way of sort of putting it's like saying the mind is in charge, it's sort of a more Mm -hmm. Western anatomical way of assuming there's an actor.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: already that probably sounds rather Buddhist, but in embryology, we don't have a nervous system. And yet we build ourselves a nervous system or grow ourselves. I like grow better than build, but um, but maybe it's cute to think of ourselves as little builders. I like to personify them a lot or I find that personification happens. <laughs> um, they seem really cute and lovable to me, all of our little cells and our bigger selves too. Um, so before we have a nervous system, um, these patterns of arrangement that we go through and that our cells in community um, call on, um, they they start before we have a nervous system. And again, as I said, I want to emphasize that we use that local communication to build ourselves a nervous system because we do need one. Nervous system performs a lot of really important functions, many of which we probably can't name, but Mm -hmm. it gets mistaken for the manager, which I think is both... Cultural. I think it's also really a human thing. I think everyone does that in some, in, in different, slightly different ways across cultures. Um, our nervous systems are more like a, a. It's like our pattern recognizer, though other parts of us are helping to remember those patterns, meaning other tissues in our bodies. But a nervous system is there to kind of manner to manage pattern recogni- mer- recognition for a lot of purposes, not just for self-protection. I think for for responding to the world in general, let's say that. I also like to move away from the assumption that everything's about survival in this super like blood tooth and nail way. I mean, there is that going on, but survival in all the ways and relating to others and and having sex and eating and and probably just enjoying being too. I'm getting really speculative, but I think that's a big part of being is like appreciating being Hmm.
0: so you you mentioned non-duality and you're talking about um different systems and and your cells and it talks a lot about you're like you're, you're talking about the body itself but how do you think of like the i guess the difference or the separation that we feel because for instance um like if if a person's playing a video game and they're on their controller they're not thinking about it or they're on their keyboard and they're not thinking about it and uh like if someone's a coder and they do that so much a day their their computer becomes an extension of themselves and you know we get we get in this flow state so how do you think about the ways we can we integrate the world into our own experience in this in this mind body uh system
1: That's a great question. Uh, and and I would even say you mentioned coding I would say any kind of language use Um, this is still something I'm very much like working out for myself and I'm figuring out, I like to be very precise and intentional with language. And I think I'm still figuring out how to say that. So, um, so I'm going to keep figuring it out (laughs) right here with you. Um, and I think any of the things you mentioned become, I like to use the word extensions, which gets used a lot in, um, like, uh, cognitive science and sometimes in embodied cognitive science. Um, so I think of any of these things, and and as you said, we can uh, sort of extend ourselves in tool use to uh, engage with our environment in kind of more complex ways. Um, so I think of it all I think of it all as tool use. I tend to mm-hmm. back away from the use of calling things like language technology. I actually think that is a blurry distinction that that doesn't accord with, uh, I don't know, I think it's important that language isn't technology, or even that a lot of spiritual systems might be techniques, or might be tools, but mm-hmm. most of them are not technology. Like I use the word technology really specifically to talk about the, the way you and I are communicating um, right now. Um, right. I would also call it a tool. So there's certainly a Venn diagram, but I would call like mindfulness, maybe loosely a tool, which I can also Is that an extension? I don't know. (laughs) I'm actually not sure. Um, I would have to think about that more, but um, no, I think that's a really amazing thing about us. And it's amazing that we can learn to use different tools, especially with habit. Like habit is certainly not all bad. It lets us do things like move around or move around with a fork or type or use language, um, without having to reconstruct it at every moment so we can do things in a flow state. We don't have to think about them. And it's great to think about things. It's also super great not to think about things um, and to, to let them flow and to be unmanaged in what we do to not have to manage every little thing. I think it's a big part of learning something new. And then Mm -hmm. once we've learned how to do something, finesse happens better often when we're not thinking so hard or we're focused. Maybe I'm moving from like a kind of pointed focus or very specific focus of trying to learn a new thing into a more kind of macro focus.
0: Listening to you, the way I kind of interpret it is that as you get more experience, you can more easily integrate it into like you can use the word extension but you you integrate it into your experience more seamlessly so that there isn't this this direct boundary so if i give someone a tool that they've never used before um they're going to have to try to think about it and figure it out and they'll probably be a little bit uncomfortable with its use until they have some experience and then they don't have to think about it and that freedom from thinking is what allows it to be integrated into into their mind body system
1: yeah yeah no, exactly. So I don't I don't personally always use the word extension, but I think that can help to sort of describe the like you said the blurring of boundaries in a relationship and yet I'm still in relationship to the keyboard or fork. So there is kind of a boundary there and again it is getting in in my use of it in our relationship, it's getting blurred, which to me is is as you can begin this question, I think that is, um, oh, I don't know what is non-duality? <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: but there's something really important there. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's fun to try to answer it. And as long as we remember, we probably can.
0: I think this is tied to um, something you've said, which is that life happens at the edge of chaos and uh, in, in a kind of anarchy. Can you say more about how life happening at the edge of chaos ties into what you've said so far?
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily use the word anarchy only cause it feels loaded. Um, mm-hmm. I've certainly noticed I've garnered loaded responses when I've said that.
0: Cause it's like political.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And so, um, and I, um, especially this, the teenage version of me is quite sympathetic to that for the record, but I'm also trying to, <laughs> uh, like, I really have a project where I'm trying to find, um, I don't know if language can ever be neutral, but I am trying to find more neutral language always, both, both in my work, like with my clients, as I move towards being a somatic therapist and, and in general, I, I find that to be a really fun and valuable project because I want to be able to communicate with a lot of people. So yeah, so I would often not say anarchy exactly, but more like things happening at the edge of chaos in the sort of mathematical sense or in the systems theory sense in that, Too much order prevents life from happening. Hmm. There are, I think I referred to DNA as parameters earlier. So there are parameters. There are physical laws. Everything is shaping everything else. And yet the kind of generative chaos in like an egg and sperm meeting or in two people meeting.
0: Creative destruction. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I guess I mean, yeah, I tend to, I mean chaos in a really neutral way. That it might be destructive, but that it's actually quite generative. So, um, what we see in um, looking at cells from a systems theory perspective, for instance, is that um, they don't have rules or laws, but they do have guidelines or principles. And so, I make dis- I kind of make a distinction there in that some parameters are are set. Right, creativity creativity happens within limitation, and the parameters that are set right. are everything responding to everything else that already exists. So every single option is not on the table and that is good. And, but but we see this in like swarming and, and um, in schools of fish and in um, unplanned responsive movement of large groups which includes ourselves and then includes us sometimes we do that better, or sometimes we do that worse as humans, but we do that a lot, quite a lot, to, than walking down the street, often in traffic. I know we have traffic laws and things, but, but I think of the way, the ways that we flow together, and even th- right. certain kinds of physical etiquette and moving together are a kind of parameter. And again, some things are laws, and there might be good reason for that. But, but so for ourselves, things aren't, again, they're more like principles or guidelines like communication happens across a distance. And and the fact that like the distance when my limbs are developing, that my fingertips get a certain distance from the cells, like in my, what will be my shoulder, they stop communicating, which stops the growth because of the sort of distance. So there's sort of a, a in the moment response, not because anything said, hey, stop growing now, that arm is long enough. But because those cells were like, Hey, buddy. Oh, hey, buddy. I can. We're still talking. We're still talking. Arms still growing. And then eventually right. the cells at each end are like, can't hear you anymore. I guess it's time to stop. I, I, I might think of some other examples too as we continue talking. But so at the edge of chaos, I mean, there's a, enough room for evolution to happen. And I don't define evolution as things necessarily getting better. I think that's also a cultural imposition that, of course, we think it's getting better because we're humans, but we're also not at the end of it. <laughs> so I don't know what it's going to look yeah. like eventually. So no, I, I also try to steer away from like, we're at some kind of apex instead of within process. Um, mm-hmm. Generative chaos would be like enough new options happening that that we can respond to our environment in adaptive ways, whether I'm a cell or whether I'm me. And so that, that would then, I don't always use the word trauma, because I think it's Mm -hmm. I think the conversation is both important right now and sometimes people get a little locked into only looking at things through that lens. But that would be an example of like a traumatized state or even an overly habitual state where some habit is good and I might have so few choices that I keep performing the same pattern in a relationship or in my life and that keeps uh, fucking things up for me. Like I need a new choice. So I think of it as being like a Goldilocks zone of... Yeah. of choice, I would say. And I'd say that's how I'm defining chaos, again, from kind of a systems theory perspective of there needing to be enough new input that exciting things can happen when they need to. And and flow and habit can happen when it needs to.
0: Hmm. There's a lot to think about there, especially when we're thinking about, like, as we integrate other other things into a flow state that is kind of like introducing it into the the chaos that is occurring within that system and it is not kind of objectifying it because as soon as i objectify the hammer and i start to think about it too much then it becomes a source of order that i'm trying to control and in doing that i become less intuitive and i become less um at play right
1: yeah so
0: it it seems you know all tied together
1: i love that you called it at play because I like to recontextualize a lot of things that that does not always feel like that. But <laughs> but I think as much as we can recontextualize things in that way, for me, it opens up a kind of enjoyment and even generosity with others that I would like to have a lot of the time.
0: Something you may not know about me is that I spent most of my life in the state of New York. Um, I lived in Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. Uh, I lived in upstate Western New York. I lived all over Long Island, like really all over Long Island. Um, So I know you spent some years there. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your time in New York and what it was like for you?
1: Yeah, I so I love New York. I just love it. And um, I am excited. I have to be back there next week to study. So my studies are still there and a little bit kind of. Mm -hmm. In some other places too, some in Connecticut, some in Oregon. So I end up traveling a lot. But I'm so glad I have this reason to go back. And um, I was there for 13 years, um, 12 and a half. But I was there for a long time. Yeah, I I like went to college in upstate New York, and I kind of knew in that moment I wasn't ready to like go to New York, but I wanted to be near it. And even there, when I was upstate, I went down like every weekend. I took the train or took this like shuttle and. Um and I knew I wanted to move there when I was done. Um mm-hmm. So I lived in the East Village for a little while. I had Nice. Well, I had the sublet from my French professor that was like 400 bucks a month, which wow. So I moved to New York with like with about 400 bucks in my pocket with nothing and no job and um a uh, a liberal arts degree which doesn't help you get a job. <laughs> 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 and so I, um, so that was kind of nerve wracking for a sec, but I remember thinking that a $400 beautiful, like, sublet on the Lower East, or sort of Lower East, sort of more East Village, I I thought that was so expensive. And I look back and I'm like, (laughs) it's just hilarious how my perspective on that has changed. So I was there a little bit. Then I moved to Bushwick really early. I moved to Bushwick in uh, 2005 and, um, and then stayed there. I was in one really kind of terrible slummy apartment that was a big mistake. I learned a lot. And then I found this kind of artist loft. Like it, it, that area was really gentrifying. And so, so I lived like across from Roberta's before it when It was just a like, I feel like it was a repo lot or something. Um, and I was a real grump when if I, if some of you are New Yorkers, you know, that pizza place. And honestly, it's great pizza. So so I was there for a long time and really developed as a person. Um, and just to give a little more about me, I'm from, so I grew up in Georgia and then somehow knew after high school, my ticket out was going to college. I was like, I want something new. New York was calling. I just kind of knew I wanted to go there. And I think it was really good for me because I went from a place of like Southern hospitality and really being a doormat. which also, I think it's family stuff. I was not taught how to stand up for myself. Mostly. It was great to go to New York and struggle really hard for a few years and then learn how to say, fuck you to people. That was <laughs> so good for me. And now I feel like I'm in the part of my life where I'm integrating it and I'm finding like a balance, like uh, definitely being in New York sometimes means sunglasses, headphones don't talk to me. I think that's adaptive and I'm glad to be able to like uh find more semi-permeability to use a cell metaphor in my membrane.
0: <laughs> what's what's hilarious is I grew up in New York and I'm currently living in Georgia and I'm going oh through gosh. the same balancing experience. Yeah. I'm going through the same balancing balancing experience because I was so like Fuck you, <laughs> you know, that was like uh-huh. so in me that like, you know, it, it becomes when you when you grow up in New York, it's it's so normal to like debate and kind of push people around. And it's a way people kind of learn to work together and communicate and like people can have like a huge argument and then let it go, you know, in a moment because they're just so used to having, you know, this not not like actual physical violence, but this nearly violent confrontation and then just be like, hey, eh, it's cool. Whereas in Georgia, I'm I'm learning a lot more about how sensitive people can be to uh, interaction. And so I am also trying to figure out the balance there. So that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, totally. No, they're really, I mean, I think they're really complimentary. I definitely have both of those people still in me for better or for worse. I mean, like I, I can see how my native New Yorker friends are so hard-edged is the wrong word but there's just something kind of tough and unflappable I think especially mm-hmm. if you grew up there as a kid where you're just like and something really boundaryed, but in a in a a way I admire because I I don't feel I was taught good boundaries from Georgian culture and from my family and so yeah something I really yeah something I really admire about that and needed and I'm still always working on. I can be really thin-skinned but I can also be kind the New Yorker in me really comes out. I'm, so I'm in California now and I do have to sometimes I walk too fast. <laughs> yeah, no, traffic is hard, too. I still want to like bike and walk like a New York pedestrian or biker, which to me is all flow. That's an example of like being at the edge of chaos. But nobody stops because we're watching each other and we're going to flow. So now here. People stop like at a crosswalk or when I'm biking. I'm like, don't fuck you, don't stop. Like you're wrecking it. Like I was <laughs> watching you. I was gonna. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so it's just different, and it's fine. I'm, I'm.
2: Yeah.
1: Keep reminding myself. I'm learning like new laws in a new culture, or new guidelines in a new culture or something. But it's funny. I really in those ways, it is so deep in me now that I wanna. Uh-huh. I'm used to jaywalking. I'm used to running. We're we're eye contact. We're not gonna kill each other. I, yeah so that's a funny thing that I still have not been able to shift. Um, yeah. and the like physical sort of closeness of like swooping around one another on a crowded street, I still sometimes yeah feel like I am rude by the standards in which I'm living now and have to, like mm-hmm. re- still refiguring that out,
0: yeah. i think I think living in New York a while, for me, slow walking is tantamount to like loud chewing. <laughs> Or, or being on your phone in the movie theater. It's just like, are you not aware of how this comes off to everybody that wants to move? But um, so you said you love New York and you you came to it from a totally different perspective um, than, than a native New Yorker. Um, what specifically did you love about New York or, or what kind of, what was the vibe there or uh, what about it really interested you?
1: It feels like a place of a lot of, possibility and maybe more on the edge of chaos than other places I don't know if that's true we I mean especially if I zoomed out and looked at the whole world but certainly for me versus like country life which is what I'm living now or suburban life which is what I grew up in it just there's so much going on and so many different people all coexisting and sometimes like yelling at each other but that's if you're not yelling or being yelled at often it's just hilarious and you know, <laughs> like I even love that part of humanity and witnessing that. Um There's so much going on. And I love being like in a subway train, just oh seeing yeah. there's right. There, like I still, that's one of the things I miss the most when I go back. I mean, it sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but when I go back, part of what I want to do is just commute by subway.
0: Yeah, it's for me, it's the sonder like you, you're just like kind of like vibrating with all these people and you're like, there are all these people uh-huh. and they're, they all seem like such characters and you just can't help but think like, what's their internal life like? Like what's, what's going on with them? Uh, that's what I love about the subway.
1: Exactly. you, and you encapsulated it in that word, which I, I always wonder how much to docs or not, but, um, but that's actually my teacher's, uh, somatic program that I'm in is called Sonder. And so that, kind of a big part of uh, um, maybe why I love semantics too. There's something about like being in a space together, moving together in the supplies to New York um, mm-hmm. and relating to one another and having such different experiences and still figuring out how to connect. That's so important to me. And um, And exactly, I love being on the subway and looking at people and being like, what is their life hike um yeah. and probably some of them are doing that to me too um there's just something about that hum that feels so vibrant and exciting
0: yeah it's like you're all you're all going somewhere you're all doing something together but it's a mystery like you don't <laughs> you can guess like oh they're they're going to school or they're coming back from school or something but the, the I, there's something about that mystery that's that's quite beautiful and there's also like we we're talking about kind of like the the brutishness or, or the aggression. That you experience in New York, and something something that really appeals to me is that I think that that sincerity and that realness allows for for generosity in, a, in an authentic way that you you can't necessarily encounter when you when everybody expects to treat each other with with a certain kind of softness or, or gentleness, and knowing that someone could kind of like hurt you emotionally or socially or whatever, but instead instead chooses to be very polite or, you know, go out of their way for you makes it seem for me so much better because nobody expects anything from anyone. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense that a big city would, one would be more aware of that in a big city where it's too many people. I think about the Dunbar number, like every day I've ever been in New York. yeah, And I think the Dunbar number might be a little bigger than like, 150 I think we have some adaptability there but but it's yeah. just too many people sometimes and yet you still have to go somewhere to work so sometimes you've got to like shut it out don't talk to me like don't ask me about the book I'm reading and that seems makes a lot of sense and mm-hmm. and I agree with you too that I mean that there's still I still really appreciate kindness and I am a very gentle person and I think I often expect a certain amount of that from others, but, right. but, but combined with kind of like you're saying, there's a combination to be had there where I really, there's so much, um, like the niceties of the South and the um, oh, what's the word, the, the passive aggression of the South is really, I have worked to unpack that um, from my cultural training and like personal training my whole life. Cause I hate that. I, pre- realness is a great way to describe New York, I think better than what word gets thrown around like brusque. Real real is actually the best way to describe it. There's something in that realness where people may read it as rude if they're not um, used to it, but it's more like an unglossy realness or unvarnished that I really appreciate. And it's taught me to be more that way. And I still have a a, a lot of kindness and gentleness in me. I think that's there's also a part of that that's deep, but I've learned how to maintain that and also really say what I'm thinking.
0: And <laughs>
1: I'm always trying to be better at doing that in, in the yeah. in the most appropriate way possible. <laughs> I often fail, but, <laughs> but that's what I'm often working on. Yeah.
0: All right. So total U-turn. Um, paraphrasing something you've said, people can become so entrenched in their belief system that they can't tell it's a belief system. I have a similar concept of how we travel the idea space where we can get trapped in these ideological gravity wells. How do you think people can better identify and resolve um, when when they don't recognize how deeply entrenched they are in their belief system or or when they get caught up in, in a specific ideology that limits their thinking?
1: I mean, that's a big, in a way, that's the big question or the uh, yeah, or is that the hard problem of consciousness? I know it's not how it's usually defined, but th- that's like kind of the question. And I love that you said a gravity well. I think of them as very physical too, like a like an attractor basin, almost like you don't even know you're you know, stuck in a place. And so I think there are, I think there are a lot of ways. And I also think those attractor basins or gravity wells are so. I mean, they're part of the habit I was describing earlier. Whether it's whether it's a habit of mind or, I mean, a habit of mind is a habit, a body of mind. So this could be something like a physical habit, which is more my, I was about to say it's more my expertise. I mean, that's kind of my work is helping people identify that and learn to change it if they want. But I find it very quickly doesn't stay in the realm of body. It very quickly, because those things aren't separate, you know, habits of body and habits of mind and are kind of co-influencing or, or facets of the same thing, even
2: mm-hmm.
1: very quickly, it becomes sort of psychology. And so I think we have many, many ways. And part of the generative chaos of being might simply be um, getting to be around a lot of different people, just to kind of go mm-hmm. back why I like New York um and not always the people we want to be around like (laughs) yeah um for better for worse and despite myself sometimes that has opened up immense possibility even from a negative interaction um so just the kind of friction of like coming up against the unexpected can both throw me into my habit or take me out of it um and and there are a lot of practices like mindfulness you know kind different kinds of Meditation, where we spend time with our minds to notice how busy they are, or spend time mm-hmm. with our bodies relatively still to see how much movement is actually happening. I think there are practices like that that can give us more time to pause, even in a
0: basically improvisation. Yeah,
1: yeah, in a spontaneous moment, um, maybe there's a little more space. The word, what we call that in in somatics is sitting in the synapse, like in the moment, uh, in that gap, can I make that gap feel bigger? Can I dilate time so that I have more choices in the moment? And so I think we need a combination of, of structures. And I think, I mean, to say a phrase like spiritual systems, that can mean so many things, but I think they're both systems that can get really entrenched and are really about being trapped in habit and then there're plenty of systems that have little windows out. Um and as I mentioned meditation I think this can be across many different sort of systems. I think psycho I mean I think anything can be a two-edged sword or maybe a purba, like a three-edged sword I mean or maybe a multi-edged sword. I don't know. Psychotherapy too can help or hinder. I think there's an opportunity in in any kind of practice where we like self-examine whether it's movement or talk or not talking. <laughs>
0: yeah, I just realized the the word for a multi-edged saber or a multi-edged yeah. sword is the name for it is a, a lightsaber. Yeah,
1: that is beautiful. You are right. Um I said purba, which is like a Tibetan three-edged blade. Um but I love to me really something if it's two edged or three edged. They're all just models that should explode into infinity. So I love that. I mean, I don't know how many fut- photons are in a lightsaber. Has anyone ever asked or answered that
0: (laughs) well it depends okay I'm not actually gonna get into this but it depends on their their like force sensitivity or whatever because you have some people that can like melt through these you know two foot steel beams or whatever and then other people that can't do that so I I don't know maybe it's it's connected to the individual I suppose
1: yeah right no I don't know a lot of us no I don't definitely don't know enough I don't remember them addressing this question anyway Mm -hmm. um but so so i think in in any moment whether it's like psychotherapy i didn't mention psychedelics i think psychedelics are a great example of because i feel like i'm trying to answer this question it's a really difficult question and Mm -hmm. i keep bouncing off of it or glancing off of it um because it's so hard to answer my favorite conversations to have i think why we're probably meeting one another this way because of the, uh, the part of twitter we're in but psychedelics are a great example maybe of more I don't I never like the phrase like the mechanism but of the sort of a little more like descriptive terminology for what's happening like getting out of my loops getting out of my mm-hmm. default mode network so that something new yeah. can happen and i think many things can shake us shake us out so yeah all of the things i mentioned meditation psychotherapy certain spiritual practices that are Maybe around um finding insight in oneself or might be around community practices talking mm-hmm. or even interventions that um can help us like I shy away from the word grow but but find more options or find more choices. That's often the language I come back to because it's slightly more neutral than grow in the sense that I just used it just because I'm in somatics and yoga i mm-hmm. Sometimes get annoyed at the like like healing and growth language, even though I think I am doing that and want to be around people yeah. doing that, it sometimes gets kind of uh, imprecise and washed out, and there's a little bit of a even like i 'm not worthy if i 'm not always working on myself, even though I think we ought to work on ourselves. I also think we ought to chill out and enjoy things and not always yeah have some balance. i hope that I hope what I 'm trying to thwart there makes sense.
0: Well, there there are different ways to play, right? And um, you once asked, like, how are you as a human being not just dancing spontaneously all the time? And <laughs> when, when I think of being present, I do think of, of this playfulness that we were talking about uh, in which you're dancing spontaneously kind of in everything you do. Um, you could even be like doing your taxes and, and dancing with it. Um, so what do you, <laughs> <Some> people, <anyway>. <laughs> goals, <laughs> goals,
1: no goals. <laughs> that yeah. is when I'm not dancing spontaneously. <laughs> all the time. But, but anyway, sorry to interrupt.
0: Um, so what, what do you think, like, what do you think the problem is? Like What, what do you think prevents people from being able to dance? Um, you, you could answer that that question regarding like physical dancing, like what, what's blocking people that have trouble with it, but also, you know, how that might extend to our, our inability to be playful in, in a lot of the aspects of our lives.
1: Yeah. What a great question. Um, and I love that you pulled play out of what I was saying again, like more just shifting from everything being, having to be hard work to things being right. play in my, in myself, I know when I'm, self-conscious dancing, which happens less and less, but has happened a lot in my life and life. And I'm, a, I grew up kind of dancing, like it was one of those kids in the suburbs that did like tap, jazz, ballet, point, lyrical, and hip hop, like all the kind of, mm. uh, anyway, I call that the like the suburban canon, but um, <laughs> I grew up dancing so, and I'm grateful for that. Like I, I feel much more at home in a dance class than probably most people. And I still, was not a person that was virtuosic enough that I haven't also felt like a total clumsy dumbass in a lot of classes too, which is like the worst feeling. Uh-huh. So, and and there's a in that moment sometimes it's so hard to not let it get to me. I think this is is a lot of um, people's hangups in dancing is self consciousness, and mm-hmm. so I know I always do worse when I'm self conscious, and maybe that's even something like we talked about at the beginning am I paying such close attention that I've kind of compressed my consciousness into a state where I can't kind of feel the whole picture and flow and Mm -hmm. look good. And sometimes it's that way. Sometimes if you're drilling into a routine or something or choreography, that's a really delicate balance to maintain. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find it happens better when I'm paying enough attention, but not too much attention. So I think self-consciousness and a kind of like um, even if I'm trying to learn certain moves, a kind of lack of spontaneity because I'm thinking too hard inhibits dancing. So, and I think we could define dancing really broadly. So Mm -hmm. barring, you know, I would be interested to see what someone who is like quadriplegic how what does their dancing look like i would I still would be very curious, and maybe I should ask someone like what their internal state is so speaking less from a sort of um what we might call like a a a limitation like that, like the limitation of like sort of someone who could dance in a recognizable way. I'm gonna say there are lots of kinds of dancing that are unrecognizable um and that's great. I think it's self consciousness and A kind of letting go and not worrying about how it looks and and tapping into how it feels because that's when the pulse of the music starts to speak and um even if you don't feel like you look good if you feel can can feel the pulse of the music and move with it you're dancing i mean Mm -hmm. yeah maybe that's how i would define dancing is like feeling that pulse and moving with it so i'm not good at doing that with other people though i notice like specifically partner dancing with contact. I feel like I'm, I've am i done some of and some contact improv a long time ago and I feel super rusty. And partner mm-hmm. dancing is where I still get really hung up to actually probably take lessons because I avoid doing it because I feel self-conscious and then I suck at it and I'm like, well, I'm a good dancer. That's part of my identity. I've danced a lot and I, I notice I avoid it.
0: You've said that you would like to have a child soon. How does your your kind of your um, your philosophy about about the embryo and, and and how that expands into your interpretation of the mind body and everything shape your perspective on pregnancy and motherhood?
1: Um, I mean, it. I really it because I can have the experience. It feels like I shouldn't pass up on it, and I don't mm-hmm. want to just do it to have the experience because it's obviously a big life commitment and, yeah. and a huge redirection. But but that is a big part of it. Is being like, I just have a feeling I'll regret it if I don't at least mm-hmm. try to see what it's like. And the, and the whole thing, I think I'm, because I'm, I haven't had a kid yet. I'm still very focused on the sort of pregnancy part. I, and I think it's too immense right. to think about the, what's going to come after that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think maybe it's even I'm thinking about that a little, but I, I can't really even conceive of that yet. So mm-hmm but some of it too is just the, the, my fascination with um, human development. I am so curious to get to witness that um, so closely in someone else and to put a lot of what I'm learning like to use in no one can be a perfect parent by any means, but I, I think I will be doing my best developmental moving movement teaching once I've started parenting and and mm-hmm. I, it feels like a like difficulty level up in like the best way and yeah. I probably don't even know maybe I'll listen to this podcast you know <laughs> god god is willing once I have a kid and be like I had no idea <laughs> but um but I'm just so curious to watch it all unfold and to and to shape how it unfolds we're where our children's environments both my body will be um, as a pregnant person. And I mean, we, anyone who comes in contact with a kid, but especially their family and people um, close to them are their environment are shaping how they move and learn. And I'm excited to do that and, and, and to learn from it. So I think like we shape their environments. We teach them things, but not always in the way we think. And they definitely teach us stuff. And I, yeah. I feel like I have a lot to learn from that. That feels like a kind of calling. Um, Mm -hmm. and it seems fun. And I think for the first time in the relationship I'm in for the first time in my life, it really feels like it'll be fun, like a Mm -hmm. fun, crazy adventure to do that with someone. That was the thing that really shifted it. I kind of, I was on the fence about kids until I met the person that I'm supposed to have kids with.
0: Speaking of Hap, um, how did you meet, uh, his, his, that is touch moonflower. How did you meet Hap? And like, what, what, interested you in him and how did your relationship start and uh if this isn't diving too deep like what what's your relationship like like what do you appreciate in one another
1: yeah um i well we met a long time ago through mutual friends i mean, how long ago would it have been now like 15ish years ago through mutual friends yeah. we we're in actually through a really good friend of mine in college um who was in an intergenerational secret society um wow. <laughs> really <laughs> and they mostly played poker and ran on, went on bike rides and did hikes and stuff but kind of a group of like artists and magicians like, again that spanned a couple generations and um and my friend from college was like i think you really fit in with like this group of people you would really like them and then they were mostly in san francisco people kind of dispersed and so my friend was from san francisco and so I started traveling out there. Just I had a few other good friends um, in college from SF. And so started traveling there, met people and met people in this group. So I met my husband a long time ago. And there's an age difference for us where I think I was 25 when I met him. He's 17 years older than me. And I remember we, mm-hmm. we went on like a group camp camping trip and at that point, I didn't feel romantic. I really just felt like for anyone in that group that was older than me, I was like, please see me as an like adult. Like I'm smart, right? Like I just wanted to (laughs) be, (laughs) to be able to talk to people who were around 40 and not seem like a doofus. And so I was kind of caught up in that, but I remember, um, Happ and I connected on humor so deeply. I, don't really remember any specifics. I just remember us laughing like the whole camping trip and with some of our other friends too, but have this deep connection, um, with humor, which is still really true. We really
2: mm-hmm.
1: giggle a lot. And sometimes even inappropriately, sometimes we're like in a serious situation and have to be like, stop. No, you stop. Like, so, um, <laughs> which maybe is, I'm going to jump around in your question a little bit, but as a thing I know we both admire is that we both have really, uh, Uh, we're easy to laugh and have really similar kind of senses of humor and um, both in kind of more intellectual jokes, but also just in, I'm going to digress for a second and say, we have this thing that I, we, he and I always argue about which terms we've coined. I'm pretty sure I coined this one about being in on the love joke, which is sort of like when your friend or family member, somehow someone you really adore is just being so themselves. And you kind of like make eye contact with another person and you're just loving that person so much, but also kind of laughing at them. But with love, I call that being in on yeah. the love joke. I feel mm-hmm. like he and I do a lot of that. And then sometimes we have to contain that, right? So people don't get embarrassed or so that we're like being socially, I don't know, <laughs> not just giggling with love at everybody all the time, but so we met a long time ago and sort of had some contact and we would just talk now and then, and like, or you know this whole like secret society where we were in had like an email list, and sometimes we would chat and um, this was much more recent, but we even like played games with friends or what not games with friends. words your friends when that was a thing like we just had contact over the years, and we now and then he would mention a book he was reading and and he's also has been a yoga teacher and has done yoga for most of his life, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, when I teach philosophy and yoga teacher trainings, I use this." esoteric tantric text i'd be like what i do too i'm the only one i know who does that (laughs) we kept being like wait you do what and and falling in love kind of intellectually first by figuring out we had Mm -hmm. just uncanny things in common and then i had always wanted to go to burning man in 2013 he had an extra ticket and invited me like hey camp with our group and we kind of I know now, since we've talked about, it, we both came away from that year like, oh shoot, I feel funny, um, um. and <laughs> and we were both in other relationships though that were um, monogamous and like, and I think with the age difference and a lot of other things, we were like, oh no 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 no, that can't happen. I'm these feelings will fade, so and then they didn't. And then in 2015, we went to Burning Man again together and hooked up, and then. Uh, <laughs> And we're like, yeah, okay, we're doing this. And then a couple of years later, like, it was a big debate. Did he move to New York? Did I move to California? But I was kind of ready. I had been looking for a reason to move and just wanting to move wasn't enough. I mean, New York is so great. And I had worked, felt like I had worked so hard to be a yoga, yoga teacher there. It was finally just starting to work where I was like, I think I finally might make enough income to actually be doing what I'm trying to do. And then was like, oh shit, now I have to leave. Okay. But, um, so I, so I kept making excuses for years. I'd been saying I was going to move to San Francisco and then, um, but hadn't been doing it. I needed the push of the person. And I was kind of like, Mm -hmm. anyway, so then, and then we got married in 2019 also at Burning Man.
0: Before the big C word.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Right before the pink sea word happened. Well,
0: they, yeah, it's good that it happened before then.
1: I'm glad we got that out of the way. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So how did you get turned on to homesteading?
1: Uh, it's something I'd always had this inkling to do and, and Hap had too. And I think this will kind of answer your previous question and the homesteading question you just asked me, but we had both always, I think like a lot of people and a lot of people, that I know on Twitter had um, maybe it's just the zeitgeist or the dream, but we'd always want to be like, I want to start a commune or I want to start an intentional community. I want to be a back to the land person. I think it's a dream. A lot of people have, and we together um, when I moved, we or when we were planning to move in together and I was going to move from East coast to West coast. We were like, I don't know. We looked at Berkeley. We looked at Oakland. Where do we want to move? And, we were like, actually, I think we want to move to the country. And so we lived in the country for maybe about four years um, before we started homesteading. Um, and because it took some time and we wanted to buy land and and we took two or three years to make a really measured decision and found a parcel of land that we really liked. And so I think it it feels like to me and I think he would agree that we were just crazy enough to be there's this generative thing that happens between him and I where we're like let's just do it and we're like okay let's do it is it too crazy I don't know let's just do it where I think (laughs) we're bigger than the sum of our parts like and for better or for worse we kind of just jump in and so we decided to start doing that both of us wanted to be We're kind of burned out by cities wanted to be closer to the land we're both very curious i mean he's an environmental scientist but um Uh we're both very curious about the the little details of being engaged with an ecosystem and that it takes to just be there watching it change every day which applies to new york too i Mm -hmm. have often said there's a thing like a kind of city magic where there is some nature there, so you can watch the change of the seasons in the way you might in the country. But there are also just you know human rituals that if you live there long enough, where you're like, oh, it's a time of year where they do that thing, or oh That's yeah, the perfect. people are doing that weird thing now, or everyone's like a teddy bear in a fluffy coat asleep at 5 a.m. on, at 5 a.m. on the train because it's the middle of brutal winter. Like, mm-hmm. so I mean cycles and ecosystems in the most general way that. Yeah. We want, But we wanted to be like kind of studying the land, having a relationship with a, speci- a specific piece of land very deeply and and honestly outsourcing less of our movement, which is like it's hard work sometimes, but I wanted to be more, I think we both wanted to be like less alienated from our labor. I'm just going to say that term. I'm going to, I mean, I know that I said I was trying to not use like loaded terminology, but but I mean, really like in the sense that I, we all outsource different things and that is okay. So really what I mean is I just want to do more things directly because I'm curious about how they get done. I can't do everything. I think it's great that we can, it is also great that we can specialize and have different niches and roles. I'm not opposed to that, but I'm a kind of doer and I like to get my hands dirty and I like to know how things work. And homesteading is one of the best ways to, to like, uh, really had to be like okay how do I build this thing or like how do we build a solar system because we're off grid how do we compost our waste because we want to enrich the soil to grow food better I learn better not in the theoretical and and just enjoy I mean so I started learning to be handy and stuff in New York too I like to I also like to keep deconstructing the dichotomy like like there's only one way to do things and in you know I found a loft space in New York and didn't really know how to do ru- drywall but hacked through learning to do that so I've kind of always just been a person that wants to like physically engage with the world and see what I can build even if it's amateurish and I again I learn by like doing I learn have learned to be a decent gardener by call myself kind of a chaos gardener I just like I'm like I'll try these seeds here and here and here and I'll see what they like the seeds will tell me I do read, but I don't, I often don't retain or don't always pay close attention to what I read or I'll like read it so that I can be like, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it this way. That's just a deep way that I am. And so homesteading felt like a really, I don't know, like I probably like what I'd like to spend the rest of my life doing. But then again, life is long. I don't know.
0: Uh, was it just you two? How many people were there? Like, what what was it? What was it practically like in the day to day?
1: Yeah, no, good question. We had hoped it would become a more, um, a bigger community and there might be kind of a new, that might still be in our future. So, and I talk about it in the past because don't want to dwell on this too much, but because we lost everything in a wildfire about three months ago. And so, so it's weird. It's always weird in conversations like this to not say that and be like, that's why I'm talking about homesteading in the past because for a little while I won't be doing it. But it was mostly just us and we had a couple of friends who um were coming and doing really regular work weekends with us. We had kind of a larger community that was doing intermittent work weekends and then a few friends that were coming and staying with us. Like we had there were a few different buildings and a tiny house. So we were we were definitely the people with a lot of weird trailers around being like come live in our space, like come help us garden. What do you want to do? What's your project? Come build it. And um that happened Um, it was happening at a small scale. And I felt like actually earlier this summer, it had just kind of started to pick up some momentum. I think we had been there for about two years then and and just nothing particularly interesting, but had sort of surmounted a few more like uh, infrastructural hurdles where we were like, oh, wow, okay. I really feel a community developing here. In a funny way, I... It's still a big question whether we choose to rebuild or not, because we're still in the cleanup phase, which is going to be terrible and interminable. I'm learning and is much more bureaucratic than I thought. And I'm we we're thinking that it's possible people will have more purchase, a feeling of purchase in a future community, because we need help if we're going to rebuild it. So that's our sort of the bright side we're trying to look on, and, and and might end up being the thing that creates more of a feeling of ownership um because there's always a dance to do between like who owns the land is it us do we put it in a land trust how much personal space do i need how much personal space do others need because i use the word commune and i've through this process learned how much um autonomy i do sometimes need and how much you know that i do need a place that feels like mine we're not looking at a commune model like some of the really experimental ones where everyone shared a toothbrush. I know that's not, that's a boundary issue for me, (laughs) you know?
2: So, so,
1: and even just in practice, I love getting to think about those questions and being like, huh, how much am I comfortable sharing? How much do Mm -hmm. I need a space to call my own? Hmm. What does it really feel like in practice?
0: So tell me, tell me a bit about, um, the fire and what what that experience was like for you and what you did and, and continue to do to kind of uh you know, I am imagine it must be extremely challenging, but um, you know, you, you come from a background of, of of spirituality and um and you know, yoga and and all of these practices. Um, how has any of that perhaps helped you through it? And, you know, what was dealing with that like?
1: I mean, it's terrible and so tough. I, I hope it's the toughest thing I have to deal with in my life. And that said, it's still incredibly, incredibly tough. Um, and I happen I've gotten the weird compliment from friends, which um, is, we've gotten, a few people have said this to us. A lot of people have said, um, well, I'm, and this sounds weird, but said like, I'm glad it happened to you. Cause you two can deal with it gracefully where it's kind of like, yeah, it's great, terrible. thanks. No, I know it's terrible. I mean, I know the friends who said it really meant it in a,
2: Ugh.
1: I felt their heart in the moment. No, I, you know, yeah. I know what you mean. A few people have said it where I'm like, I'm like too soon, please leave me alone Ugh. now. And yeah. well, a few yeah. really good, <laughs> and some good friends have said it where I really feel seen. And I'm like, I hope you're right about me. Um, I'm going to try to trust that. Um, so. I, I do, like I described earlier in a positive sense, I do think there's a, um, Hap and I have a a real kind of creative tenacity together that I hope we can call on. Um, and we have s- extremely hard moments. We're really the day we're really up and down. Um, yeah. I am, and we're spending more time in town and more time with people. And I we've learned we have to kind of make ourselves busier both to fill the time that's not filled with projects anymore and just mm-hmm. because right now um where we're living because it's not my home, every little thing reminds me of what we've lost. So I'm, I I think I'm mm-hmm. probably in the hardest part and uh. I'm I'm really trying to remind myself of that. And so I am I am grateful that I have had at least some practice um in my life I still get really hung up and we have really miserable moments and I still have a part of me that can be like this, I can't stay stuck in this. I have to figure out how to have fun. And so again, that is easier talking to you than like if we're here alone and just got like bad news from the county OES, the Office of Emergency Services, which being stuck in that bureaucratic bureaucratic process is like part of what's Hardest about it, i have always tried to avoid government and bureaucracy as much as possible yeah. and um in some ways, I mean it's weird in every moment, there's a different piece that feels worse, but right now, especially with the kind of emailing we've been doing with kind of county officials, right now I'm like why why am I cursed to have to deal yeah. this closely with bureaucracy when it's like a matter of my whole life. So that is weird. And I, I, that just is what it is. And sometimes that feels like the hardest part. And, um, I am grateful for as much as I've meditated. I, maybe I wish I'd meditated more. I probably should be doing that more now. I have not been doing that lately. Um, Hap has been it's doing it a little a
0: tragedy. It's hard after a tragedy. Yeah. It's
1: so hard. Right. And I, I'm certainly not avoiding the grief or at least not entirely and there are times where i am seeking distraction because i can't live in that um because it's too overwhelming so i'm kind of trying to titrate it where i can um, because i do find in moments of stillness like that's when it really wants to come out um and so we Maybe what I would want people to know that I didn't know until it happened to me is that um, we're, I think it's different state by state, but there's a, we didn't, the fire we lost everything in didn't hit the threshold of estimated um, monetary damage cumulatively that, so that such that there is no state aid and no FEMA. So that's the thing. I kind of assumed that would just kick in for everybody and it doesn't. And I'm sort of saying it because that. it that sucks. Yeah, it sucks super hard for us right now. We're fighting it. That's the kind of bureaucratic hassle we're in and all the, the people we keep talking to about cleanup because it's like toxic, it's hazmat cleanup. Many of them are like, it's too expensive. You should go with a government program where we're like, there is no government program for us. Mm. So we kind of felt that we've fallen through the cracks and, and I'm saying it on this podcast because honestly, I do want some sympathy. It totally sucks, but more I, the policy should change. And I can't help but look at the people like in Florida who will get expedited FEMA. And I have a, I have a weird envy of them, which is so bizarre and not a feeling I, I had predicted I would have. So there's some weird surprises too, where I'm like, comparing my disaster to others. And I'm like, would that be better? Do I wish I was, they got, at least they get the aid right away and don't have to like do the uh, sort of like emotional labor of begging for it. But anyway, Uh, that's all, it's all weird. Um, (laughs) it's all really weird.
0: Speaking, speaking of that support, I, I think if, um, I think if there's something positive to take from this, it, it shows kind of the, uh, the strength and love in in our community that um, mycelium mage started that that funding program and uh, and a lot of money was raised and props to everybody that donated and I'll definitely link that in the show notes um, for anybody that that wants to give or donate uh, to help y'all out and um, but but the fact that so many people you know turned out um, to to try to help I think was Um, you know, it speaks so deeply to the love and care in in this community and and how much um, people support you and have,
1: you know, it's been incredible. And we have been floored by, um, by just the support and love from lots of people we know, lots of people we've met once or twice. And so many Mm -hmm. people we haven't even met in person. It's um, insane. And I still, I mean, uh, there are no words for like the depths of our gratitude. We have been trying to figure out how in the fullness of time, we, I don't know what, like, what do we even say? How do we, how do you say thank you for that? And that has really kept us going. Um, I also know that in that way, we're the word, the word luck is weird to me now. We felt super Mm -hmm. incredibly lucky when we found our homestead. It felt like the, for a lot of reasons that I won't go into, it felt so serendipitous. Now I'm like, was it? <laughs> Maybe that was totally the wrong place. And at the same time, we feel we know we'll be okay because so many people care. It's it's right. crazy. Again, there's not like the, the feeling of awe and love that we've gotten and from this community is, is just uh, flooring and I'm getting kind of teary thinking about it. And it has really kept us going, even through this, like the hard process of, Fighting bureaucracy because I that part is hard, and I'm but I'm like, wow, so many people care. Will whatever happens, we're gonna be okay. And and I don't know that everyone in this world gets that level of care, and I I think they should. So, yeah, I would say that I guess this is one place other than the sort of broadcasting we can do on Twitter or on the crowdfund, but in just being like, thank you, and it's part of what has, part of what has kept us going is just, yeah, feeling like people care, feeling like people care.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really wonderful and beautiful. Um, returning to, to, to basics here, uh, you know, like you, you, you studied yoga for so long. Um, this is probably maybe, maybe too simple a question, but I, I, for me, I think it's, it's extremely central to, to all of this that we've been talking about, but how do you breathe? You know, like how do you breathe properly?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to breathe properly. (laughs) And, um, and, and, and so, and we, returning to choices, it's good that we can breathe lots of different ways. um, Because we need to breathe different ways at different times. I think in resting breath, unless we're stuffy or something, I mean, to be more technical or more sort of prescriptive in and out through the nose is has a certain calming effect on our nervous systems that uh, breathing in and through our in and out through our mouths tends to signal like nervous system arousal or excitation, which we need sometimes. If you're running, mm-hmm. maybe breathe through your mouth. I mean, I've I'm not a runner anymore, but I was when I was younger and still overlapping with my yoga practice. And I used to treat it like mm-hmm pranayama or breath practice, but but a different kind than if I'm sitting and breathing and focused on that or resting and breathing and focused. And so the, maybe the most important way to breathe is in the way that's right for the moment, which might be slow and steady when we're chill. If I get excited talking to you or if mm-hmm. I'm, um, especially now where there are a lot of just difficult conversations that Pap and I are having all the time, mm-hmm. or even if it's just with my family and there was no tragedy, like the taking, pausing and taking a deep breath, I would also say is integral, whatever we're doing. Um, remembering to, to pay attention to breath, especially when you kind of get carried away with things might be one of the most important things and, and being able to pay attention to it and being able to let mm-hmm. go of paying attention to it too. Cause it's great that we don't yeah. always have to.
0: I actually really enjoy that. Like paying really close attention and then letting go something about the letting go and it's still being with you. For me, it's one, one of the practices that brings the most peace, but we're we're talking a little bit about grief and, um, you've written on a, on a different topic that like the, the weepy sensitivity that comes from serotonin depletion after a trip is a part Mm -hmm. of the journey and isn't to be avoided. Um, and that, that made me think of, you know, not only tripping, but also like kind of the dark night of the soul type thing that, that people go through spiritually, um, not even necessarily in the face of tragedy, but, um, just through, through their, their own life. Um, do you think that there's like a, there's a, there's a parallel in like, in, in facing serotonin depletion versus like facing, um, grief and, and these, um, I guess, larger scale or or longer cycles that we experience as humans?
1: Yes. I think that, I mean I could expand the definition of trip and say that those sort of shamanic journeys or dark nights mm-hmm. of the soul or um whatever they're called in a specific context are also journeys or trips and um I think we can you know, if I like well I'll just say like induce those states in a lot of different ways and they're all really valuable and um yeah I love what you're saying about um I the, or the connection you're drawing between like those experiences and and breath, or at least that's what I, what I kind of heard in what you were saying and like kind of reiterating, um, paying attention to breath or paying attention to anything and then not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Maybe the more than the attention, the change in attention is what's important. The transitions, Mm -hmm. I find myself really interested in that now and, um, being able to change between states or transition. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at. And like what I said about tripping which I think I said before my personal tragedy and I'm feeling it in grief too is like how can I go into whatever I'm feeling and really feel it and then not get stuck there whether it's a feeling I might objectively or, or subjectively call good or bad whether it's a feeling I want to get stuck in which for me often yeah. I've had some what you could call bad trips that I still learned a lot from that I definitely wanted mm-hmm. to be out of and then I've had a lot of Great ones where I know there's a sense of sadness that comes over me on the come down. And that would be true of anything, whether that is an entheogenic trip or a wonderful vacation or a wonderful social night with friends or, I don't know, a great feeling or experience. Something about like being in the experience enough to enjoy it or to feel it if it's grief or something, maybe that we might want to avoid feeling. Letting us, Mm -hmm. letting ourselves feel our feelings. And then when it's time or when we're called to, because life asks us to shift sometimes, then can I, like I had a really terrible morning this morning because of some of the, because of the fire and a lot of things, just difficult decisions we're in the middle of. And it's like, okay, we need, I have to go work to do errands to run and even earlier, I was like, do I cancel the podcast? I'm in such a terrible mood. I'm going to do such a bad podcast. <laughs> and lo and behold, like being in town and even running the errands and stuff that I didn't want to mm-hmm. do yeah. made me be like, oh, I'm super excited to do this. I can totally do it. So sometimes there's even a little like, if I can't change my mind, because I can be very stubborn, I notice it's the voice is really strong, whatever mood I'm in where I'm like, I don't want to get out of the lovely hot tub. I don't want to feel the shitty grief there's a really stubborn voice in me that doesn't want whatever's going on to change, but especially negative stuff. I find that voice comes up where I'm like, I'm still angry and hurt. I don't want to forgive that voice. I'm always like, I try to go for like the little chink of light. That's like, yes, you do. You'll feel better. You'll feel better. If you go for a walk, you'll feel better. If you eat a snack, you'll just drink some water, put cold water on your face. I don't know. Look at your pet, your cat, like the little voice where I'm like, I don't want to, I try to power through (laughs) and do it and then suddenly i'm glad that i did it and so um whether it's i think that's part of part of what i mean by yeah to come back to what i said about that being part of the trip is that it's sort of like how can i be in integrated in letting myself experience the whole and not getting stuck or in any one part or i think we get attached to things but i yeah. can um flex my non-attachment muscles by like using the little tricks I described to like, to like trick myself into feeling better or changing my mood, even if I don't want to.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's a a part of an answer to my next question, which is, which is basically like, um, you, you went through a a terrible experience and, and terrible experiences are often tied to trauma. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your, your thoughts regarding trauma And um, how we can we can manage um, either either recovering from bad experiences or um, or managing a traumatic event in the past um, in in a healthier way.
1: Yeah, I mean, always working on that. But I think I think you're right that some of what I said directly applies, which is like not getting stuck. Which kind of said this earlier, but not in these terms being in a triggered state or in a kind of traumatic reaction is a kind of stuckness. We're stuck in like one routine, um, mm-hmm. probably a, a whole concert or, or like symphony of body responses and locked locked in. And, and that has a really specific body tone and maybe a different tone for different uh, trauma. And so mm-hmm. I have moments where I have noticed it in the past, whether it's more like childhood stuff coming up in my adult relationships or whether it's kind of the effect of the fire and we had to flee really quickly and didn't have a lot of time or whether it's that, that there there might be a slight qualitative difference to how my body feels, but, and because that's sort of my work, I'm pretty attuned to eventually noticing that I'm like, wow, I really need to, my jaws needs to crack. I really need to like open my mouth wide and puff out my cheeks or, oh my God, my shoulders are tense. I either need to, have someone else massage them or get out a foam roller or like massage them myself or my neck is doing that thing. I tend to attune to my body response of it. And maybe that's just because it's sort of my work and my practice. But I also sometimes think that not just for me, I think for a lot of people that can be an easier way to shift the mindset that comes with it. Because again, I find the mindset of trauma to be in me really stubborn, um, whether it's like big sort of big trauma or little trauma where I'm just like, no, I'm hurt. I don't want to make up with my partner. I'm still mad. Like, can, if I can notice the body responses and, and try to relax or use the tools I have to relax or take a deep breath, as we were saying, it can, there's like room for it to shift.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, room is is very important. That creating distance. That like when we're uh-huh. when we're dwelling so deeply on, on something, or or thinking so deeply on um, something troubling us, uh, we we're, we're like it's right in our face, and we can't even really perceive it properly. Um, but once we get some distance from it, we we can we can work with it a little bit better or understand it better. And understanding um, allows us to maybe to maybe accept or or forgive or or something, something like that. You know, obviously various situations require different approaches, but I think the distance is important regardless of the approach.
1: No, I think you're right. And I like the word room. Um, like I often say like more choices that just tends to be the the language. Some of my teachers use and it feels really Mm -hmm. more neutral and really ripe to me, but yeah, room, it's like it, it from takes me from being in a kind of contracted, consciousness state and a contraction in my body to being a little more expansive, right? Where even the metaphors or the language I want to use, it feels like it opens up room for something to move or something else to come in or something to go out, something like that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But it's like that meme where it's like, is the problem in the room with us right now, you know, (laughs) and recognizing that it's like, it's actually just this, this thing I'm feeling. It allows you to create some, some room. Um, I have some practical questions for you and this, this one would serve me, which is basically, um, do you know any uh, useful ways for like improving joint health? I find like for me and a lot of people that are, um, you know, just aging and aren't 22 anymore. um, Like joint health is, is one of the biggest ones. So is there anything you do regularly or that, you know, of that, that helps a lot in that area?
1: Yeah. I, I, if people eat meat, I think they should drink bone broth. (laughs) I'm like a huge proponent of just things like good nutrition. Um, and especially including, I think feel like there's something really magical in like drinking liquefied cartilage to help your cartilage. And so I'm into Mm -hmm. the both magic and the sort of utility of recommending that. And I think it's delicious. Um, and uh, I mean, this also really comes from the somatic world I'm enmeshed in, but I, um, I do think as we get older, we, to some degree might start to pick and choose our activities. Like I know, like I don't run anymore. Cause for me, it was bothering my knees. And th- the answer to why that was happening is complex. I think it was partly damaging my knees cause I was doing it on concrete. And I think there were movement patterns. I could have cho like, Sussed out to not have pain when running. I think that's also a possibility. I think there's some things life is gonna break us down and we age. And really, aging is our bodies not renewing quite as fast as they break down eventually. I also want to change the cultural assumptions around that where we still are renewing until we're really old. And so, but sometimes we have to allow ourselves more time for recovery. So, I sort of interrupted myself. I'm going to come back to more time for recovery. Some of it is meant like I don't love running, but I love dancing. And sometimes I'll dance for three or four hours and my knees will still hurt, but I love it. It feels worth it. And I have learned that I'm, while everyone has a certain amount of osteoarthritis by like 20 or 25, that's just a normal sort of what gets defined generally as osteoarthritis, which is also a pretty broad category. So much of pain before it becomes physical damage is our body being like, that hurts. Don't do that anymore. And, and for me, as I get older, I I think I'm in more well-rounded shape because so on the sort of talking about recovery, I might need to warm up more, which is mm-hmm. I'm going to file that under recovery. I may need to prepare for what I'm doing more. That has changed in a big way. Like I used to be able to teach a yoga class as a 20 year old and just pop into like an advanced pose and just do it. I cannot do that now. (laughs) I have to practice it first and then teach it, which is annoying, but (laughs) a reality. Um, And I, so um, maybe this is the opposite of recovery, but preparing for what we're going to do or warming up and then um, stretching a little bit after whatever we are doing, even if that's simple. And I'm a big proponent of things like gentle yoga or really restful or restorative yoga or foam rolling, especially for finding the little sore places where often like my knee pain I found. I I ended up having imagery a few years ago because I've had some sort of idiopathic joint pain and things that I still can't really figure out. And um, I was shocked at how little mechanical damage I had to my knees. I was sure I had torn menisci and all kinds of things. So I've dealt with knee pain my since a teen. And it has really taught me things I've learned again and again, which is that, oh, if I do certain like foam rolling and myofascial release, use therapy of balls around my knees and stretch well, my knees don't hurt or they don't hurt as much and not as much as in my 20s. So I always want to tell people that, that pain doesn't necessarily mean damage or damage we can't recover from. And people just get more sleep. Everyone should get as much sleep as they can. I've learned I also can't skimp on that as I get older
2: mm-hmm.
1: and lots of water. So that's what I would tell people. <laughs> Those are all the things for preventing. And, you know, I have mixed opinions. If we're running on concrete, we might need springy shoes to protect our joints. But in general, I think more of a like barefoot shoe for walking and non-impact things is also going to keep our joints functioning better. I think there's a certain myth to orthopedics and arch support. And I think there's a balance to be had with, you know, if we're walking on sidewalks or concrete all the time too. So
0: everyone should just run on the beach, right? Just go down the beach. It's it's right down the road.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, with all the <laughs> free time they have. Um, but just be, but being barefoot a little more helps. Like, yeah. yeah, walking. I know. I mean, in the city, it's different. You may not be able to walk on mm-hmm. bare ground all the time. But I mean, this is, again, opening a yeah. can of worms. I'm going to try not to go very far down. But even just mm-hmm. our feet have one fewer bone than our hands. And our, our feet are adapted to like grip curved surfaces and not just walk on flat surfaces with arch support. And I think some joint pain is from not actually from not maintaining that dexterity. Yeah. And if our feet are kind of locked up and not moving, other parts have to move more. So actually I would say that maybe that's my, the thing that I forgot that I'm now remembering is that joint health is also about um, a little bit of, a little bit of movement in a lot of places instead of one place taking Mm -hmm. the brunt because other places are like locked up, which I'd say also has to do with stretching and noticing when we're tense and trying yeah. to do our best to alleviate that.
0: Well, I imagine a lot of people listening are the kind of people that are working from their chair. And mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of complaints from a lot of people of, of various pain, whether it's in their their legs or their lower back, stuff like that. Um, do you have any uh, like yoga poses you would recommend or, or any practices like you mentioned the foam roller um, mm-hmm. that I, I know not a lot of people do? What do you recommend for people that, um, are doing all of the sitting and not doing a lot of, um, recovery or, or anything to help it?
1: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately all the sitting we're, we're often asked to do. And even as a, I assume as a yoga teacher, there's so much, I teach online more now. There's so much online admin that I find myself needing it to maybe the most basic is getting up and walking around regularly, even if it's a brief moment to do that, um, what would be, I'm tr- I'm trying to think of like my three favorite poses or something you can do really quickly. I mean, I would say, so get up from your desk, walk around, do what I'm going to call a modified downward dog at your desk, which would be something like facing your desk or table, palms flat on the table and walk your feet out so you can make your body in an L shape, um, hinging at your hips. And then people could play with pressing into their hands and um, people can bend their knees doing this, by the way, too, in the L shape, but can play with pressing into your hands and either kind of pressing your chest down to the floor and letting your head hang or thinking of aligning your spine and ears with your upper arm bones when you're doing this L shape. Mm -hmm. So for those who know yoga, I'm going to call it the like desk downward dog or the modified downward dog. Um, From there, one could easily bend one's knees and fold forward. So the kind of classic touching your toes, it's okay if you can't touch your toes, maybe you're, I don't know, you don't have to touch the ground. Your hands could be on your shins or thighs or even on your chair. So you're going like, instead of being in kind of an L shape, kind of like full forward folding a little lower. Um, So standing forward fold for those who know yoga. Um, Mm -hmm. And then last thing, this is hard to do if you work in an office, but more people work from home lying on your back on the ground for five minutes, just on the ground, knees bent, feet on the floor, letting your spine have the time it needs to realign itself. It's kind of like getting out of the way of what the chair does. So I'd say that lying on your back, knees bent, feet on the floor, or maybe even better, um, uh, supported inversion, which would mean lying on your back with your like legs over your chair or legs on your couch. Or even you could put your legs all the way up the wall. But legs on a chair is often more accessible. Maybe we don't have wall space. For some folks, the flexibility to put their legs up the wall and be at, like, I hate using 90 degrees, but I'm just going to say it as shorthand, being at around 90 degrees at your hips. Um, So that inversion to also let, kind of get out of the way of um, your spine doing its thing. And then maybe something like a twist lying on the ground. So arms spread out wide drop your knees to one side and then drop your knees to the other side and hold each side for a couple of breaths. That would be, if I had to do my like, okay, I'm going to add one more thing. Or if you have a foam roller <laughs> lying with a foam roller over your middle back in kind of a supported back bend, which you could do that with a rolled up blanket or towel too. So maybe I should even make a little tweet thread of being like, here's what I yeah. do when I've been sitting too long and my body feels gross. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. No, thanks for the inspiration. Um, I'm so bad at doing things like that because <laughs> it's kind of my work, but I actually love sharing it because I want people to feel more comfortable and happy. And it, it's, I feel lucky I have the tools to do that.
0: Um, speaking of tools, Michael Kersey uh, told me that on your show, which I, I watched, um, he you recommended the foam roller and he was wondering if you had any other tools that you recommend people picked up Because he found the foam roller very useful.
1: Yeah, I mean a foam roller, which you can get. I'm gonna just say more details about a foam roller, um, which you can get really cheap ones on Amazon. But if people can like pay up for it, I think the cheap ones are like ten bucks, but they're they're really hard, like gray or like almost kind of black um, foam ones, like a PT grade one, which they don't pay me, but you can get from OPTP.com. These like more like soft, uh, a softer one is often surprisingly better. When I started doing it, I was like, I am very physical. I need the hardest foam roller. I need the deep tissue massage. Our tissues respond to the level of hardness with their own kind of pushback though. And so a little softer, squishier one that you pay up for can, um, can actually encourage your tissues to also soften and relax, which a lot of pain comes from that kind of tension Our tissues being stuck in a, uh, yo, yeah.
0: If if somebody wanted to Google that, what would they search yeah. for? Like you said, OTPT.com, but if they want to look more generally.
1: Oh gosh. Um, maybe like PT is in physical therapy grade foam roller. That's what I would tell them to search for. And so I would recommend those. I recommend th- like they get called therapy balls or myofascial release balls. And you can usually find them the same places as foam rollers. So The sort of cheap at home options that some people have are like two tennis balls or two lacrosse balls. I personally think lacrosse balls are a little too hard. You can get these Mm -hmm. balls called pinky balls, which you can find on Amazon or different sort of PT myofascial release sites. But kind of anything, you could use a balled up sock, like anything you can use to get into a little like knotted place and put your body weight there and whether you're leaning with the ball in between you and a wall or on the floor, which if you're on the floor, you'll be giving more body weight. It's going to be more intense. Um, So I would even encourage people. I mean, people could use a door frame to maybe get in between their shoulder blades kind of like a, like a bear might do on a tree or, I mean, I don't know if that's what a bear do. Maybe a bear is more like scratching their skin. I don't know what they're going for, but (laughs) so I would almost say like getting creative, like where can you like sort of, I don't know, press some, a surface into your body to like give yourself a little impromptu massage. And then maybe the best tool though that we have is like lying on the floor for five minutes. I really, whether our jobs are too sedentary or really physical, that, there's, that cannot be underestimated for spinal health.
0: So you have your psychosomatic studies. Has that informed you at all about diet?
1: when people ask me that, cause I do get asked that question and you know, because a yoga teacher too, I always have to be like, I'm not a nutritionist. I always feel like I kind of like, I'm not a doctor, which I also like, you know, tell people a lot. I feel like in my, in my position and as a yoga teacher, you get asked a lot of questions, some of which I can answer. And some of which I'm like, yeah, I'm like here's my opinion and definitely go ask somebody about that. who's not me. <laughs> and so for real nutrition, nutritional inquiries, I definitely say that, but I, but, you know, as part of paying attention to one's body, the food we eat starts to become more and more important as we age, it does too. I feel like I've always been fairly attuned. Like I kind of grew up eating, my parents really emphasized fruits and vegetables and things. I grew up eating pretty healthy where I feel like I've always felt pretty attuned, but I could still drink a cherry Coke and eat peanut ms every afternoon when I was 18 and I <laughs> cannot do that anymore yeah. um so I do think that our ability to process things just it just changes um we mm-hmm. can't we don't have as many enzymes to digest things as we get older all of that um, happens to digestion I think it's really individual um, but I have found for me and some of the interventions I've needed needed with diet are really particular I think I don't want to dwell on it too much but I I think I mentioned having a like, like idiopathic joint pain. So I kind of was ill years ago and had to, and I ended up landing on a paleo ish diet to help a lot of joint pain and inflammation I was experiencing. So I think I have some sort of something particular going on that I've never been able to get a name for, but mm-hmm. I, and I mean, I can speculate as to what all of that is, but for me, it meant um eating, more vegetables more fruit and more, and meat is a backbone of my diet. I had been more vegetarian, not strictly for a long time, but for me, vegetarianism doesn't work. I tried veganism and even being kind of raw for a while, that just does not work. I think it does work for some people. Um, and that's where I would say there are like working with a nutritionist or someone that knows more about like how to individually tailor that to, for people is really important. So, so I would only say like what works for me, which is like, and whole, whole foods, not too much sugar, lots of water, not a lot of alcohol. I cannot drink a lot. I had to, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never been a big drinker, but I, in this illness I mentioned, I really had to be real that I can't get away with doing much of that at all. So and, and I think people have to be willing to experiment too. So I've done a lot of elimination diets and had which is where you kind of figure out what you respond well to and what you don't respond well to. And to me, it's like a process, for elimination where I've done, I mean, I actually didn't need to make that silly pun, but every year at the beginning of the year is kind of a refresher for January. Sometimes for a few months, I do um, an elimination diet and I learn something each time. I both learn something about like craving and what I kind of, I don't know, medicate with. Yeah. And yeah, I learn like what I turn to for comfort. And then I also learned things like, Oh damn, I shouldn't eat so much cheese. Oh, but I can get away (laughs) with eating a little cheese and still feel okay. All right. Like I learned, I feel like I've dialed it in where I, I figured out stuff that really doesn't make me feel good and other things that do. And it's really surprising and so individual. So I would tell people to also be, be willing to experiment, even though it's, it's so hard. And especially now I'm like definitely stress eating right now. I'm in a hard, I'm eating like way too many desserts and you know what, that's fine. Actually. <laughs> I think we need times to do that too. And partly I do the sort of elimination diet at the beginning of the year. Cause I like to enjoy all the holidays at the end of the year that usually involve yeah. overeating. <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> so I also really believe in like, maybe like we were talking about before, like, thinking about something really hard and not thinking about it. I, I'm Mm -hmm. not, I'm not a person who's good at doing any one thing for a long time. I kind of like, I'm kind of an experimenter. And so I would tell Mm -hmm. people to do that. I don't know, to get to know themselves better.
0: I'm thinking that kind of in the same way that sitting for like eight hours a day is bad for the body. Um, the atomization in in largely Western society, uh, is, is bad for the, the the community body and you have a lot of experience um, in communities and in, in community building and, and thinking about community. Um, do you think that for, for people that uh, are dealing with loneliness, especially after everything with COVID um, you know, they've locked into these uh, kind of atomized individual lifestyles where they're not getting a lot of community. Um, what do you, what can people do to kind of break out of that and start being part of a community, um, and, and connecting with people more deeply?
1: Oh, it's just such a, such a, you ask really good questions. You're a really good interviewer and, um, and really thoughtful and
0: thanks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And, um, and it's such a, you know, it's just, oh, it's such a, it's a question that just plagues us. I think you're right. I know so many people suffer from loneliness and yeah, Mm -hmm. as you said, the pandemic did not help that.
0: So what's worked for you to branch out?
1: As I've gotten older, I have, I mean, I'm somewhere between introvert and extrovert and maybe a little closer to introvert on that spectrum, but not nearly as introverted as some. So I recognize that I still have to push myself sometimes to introduce myself to people or, and people tell me I seem very relaxed in social situations. I think that gets more and more true, but I'm also just here to say, if you have met me and I seemed chill, I still get really nervous meeting new people and and I often wait for other people to do the introducing or to make the first move. Um, I've noticed that pattern and I've, uh, particularly because we moved to this to, to Homestead, to this new town during the pandemic, like worst time to move. It's only been in the past six months or a year that um, happened. I've been like, wow, I think we're lonely. We don't really know people in town like we would in normal times. And we've both had to kind of push ourselves to be like, hey, I've seen you around a lot. Hey, I'm Hap, I'm Vex, and to meet people. And I have noticed it's silly, but I feel like I have to learn this lesson my whole life that I, to take make the first move, other people who seemed maybe cool or stuck up or like they, I was like, I don't know if they want to talk to me, but they seem interesting, have lit up mm-hmm. and what, oh my God, they want to talk to me. Like, amazing. <laughs> and so. Sometimes it's reminding me like, oh yeah, right. As much as I feel like I don't want to be awkward or make the first move, many people don't. There's some people who are comfortable with that, and so I would tell people to, I don't know. Sometimes it's going to be awkward. Some people are jerks. Mm-hmm. You might encounter someone at the wrong time. If you encountered, encountered me at the wrong time in the line of the coffee shop, I might not want to talk. If you can't encountered me at the right time, I would mm-hmm. talk your ear off and make friends with you. So to to not take it personally and to be willing to keep trying, even if you feel like you, um, uh, it doesn't always work out (laughs) because it doesn't always work out, but I still am surprised at how much it does. Um, so I would say that, and, and I think people are even doing the right thing on Twitter. I think there's something about like learning to do that in real life for a deeper connection, but you know, the, pandemic surprised me at how much I needed to connect to people digitally, which I didn't do in the way I do now um, before. And it has been kind of taught me the same lessons I just described about meeting people in real life, that people are friendly and want to connect generally. And you got to put yourself out there and do it. And, And Twitter can be a great way to get comfortable being vulnerable to practice than like going out into the world and being like, hey, Hey, how are you? What's your name? I yeah. see you at the farmers market all the time or I mean for people who don't I feel like they have an in it might just mean yeah. going to the same places whether that's the farmers market, I don't know, whatever. Whatever you like to do like mm-hmm. you know, go do your hobby and like recognize people and then talk to them.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it it connects right with that with that kind of pursue your passion concept that if you're on Twitter and you're, you're in this community talking about things you actually really talk like care about, if you are near a metropolitan area, you could probably meet up with people that you know online and you can be part of a community and you can go to vibe camp and, and you can, uh, can do things in real life that will, will assuage your loneliness much more than, you know, tweeting nonstop. <laughs> yes. Right?
1: Yeah. 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 I think tweeting, tweeting is, fine and great. But like, kind of like we were saying, don't maybe don't do one thing all the time, (laughs) (laughs) whatever Uh, that thing is.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to stop, actually. Um, You know, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think uh, we we covered a great range of topics. And I'll make sure to include on in the show notes, um, all, all the things we've discussed, but also um, any way that people can donate. So I know about the the um, the GoFundMe. Is there any other way that people can help out?
1: Um, the GoFundMe is a great place to start. And then maybe we can even link to, like Hap has a list of books that he and I are both you know, contributing to, but people have been so kind and sent us books, which if people want something that in a way is almost more personal than just donating to a GoFundMe, whether you have a book or find a book, that's been so sweet. We're we're kind of book collectors. And I mean another thing I should mention that I would have earlier if I thought about it when we were talking about the crowdfund is just the I'm so sad about the books we've lost and the new ones. I kind of remember who gave us what so far. And I I think I will mostly remember and it's extra sweet. Suddenly our whole book collection is books from friends, which is
0: ah uh, Yeah.
1: It's I know, it's so sweet. I'm like getting teary saying that. It's there are so many bad surprises about all of this and so many really good magical surprises like the the new meaning in having a book where I'm like, oh my gosh, so-and-so sent me this. I'm going to kind of think of them whenever I pick this book up. So I'd say those are the ways for now. And we were going to work on a tool list. I don't think we have that together, but people, if they have ideas, they can reach out in the fullness of time. There might be building projects, although as I said, we're kind of, like the bureaucratic process of cleanup is going to be it's going to take patience i'm learning
0: well anyone listening uh definitely check out the show notes for ways to help and always feel free to reach out to uh embryosophy and touch moonflower to see uh you know if you're local maybe you give them a hand or anything you could do to help would be greatly appreciated thank you so much for being on the show booty it was a lot of fun
1: thank you so so much critter
0: It was wonderful having Booty on. You can find her at Embryosophy, which is E-M-B-R-Y-O-S-O-P-H-Y, on Twitter.com. Feel free to Google her GoFundMe at Bex and Hap Relief Fund. And also check the show notes for more options of what you could do to help. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes, go to becomingcreature.substack.com.